Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please, as we continue our worship. Father, we are, I trust, truly grateful, not just to be able to gather together, but to have our gathering testify to the truth of who we are, the truth of what we've become in Jesus our Lord. We, we take note all the time of the fact that we are not saved as a, as a bunch of independent individuals. That was never your design. But as your design was to gather up everything in your creation into Jesus our Lord. So your goal for us as human beings was that you would form in a marvelous and, and mysterious way, a new human organism. A community of human beings who are defined by their membership in one another. As Father, Son, and Spirit are one, so we become one as sharers in the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. And Father, this is a profound truth that is so easily lost on us, and and we have been privileged in many ways and at the same time cursed to live in a country, in a nation that has allowed and has made seemingly very natural a quasi-Christian faith that's characterized by the very sort of ease and comfort that Chris mentioned this morning, the kind of independent, easygoing life that we've known so much in this country. And as much as the days ahead are unknown to us, as much as the times that are that we will encounter uh, cannot be fully predicted. It would be a good thing if the days of an easy, comfortable, immature, childish, and self-serving Christian faith would come to an end. That we would, as Paul said, quit ourselves like men, that we would grow up, that we would recognize the importance of our own lives before you, our testimony in the church, our testimony as the church in the world. None of us wants to suffer 
But ease is the great enemy of faith and maturity. And I pray that our heart, Father, would be as your heart, that we would truly labor in all things with the effectual working of the Spirit to grow up in all things, all things into Christ who is the head. And that that would be the nature and the true orientation of our relationship with one another. That our goals would be your goal. That the orientation and direction and and emphasis of our lives would be that which you have purposed for us. Oh, that your church would be a faithful witness in the world. That through the church, the world would understand, Father, that you sent the Son and the meaning of his coming. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That has always been the case. But in our generation, it is certainly true. And in a unique way that I think we have not experienced in the history of this nation. I pray that you would attend to our time this morning and that you would cause it to be fruitful. Even if that fruitfulness in the moment is simply things to think about, things to ponder, things to meditate on, things to do business with. So meet us in this time. We devote it to you. We pray for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, where we are in the epistle to the Hebrews, as we are, have been addressing Moses, and even as we will move forward to Rahab, we, we really are faced in the text with this issue of the, the submission to authority. We see that with Moses. We, we saw that even with Joseph in a way. And as I said, we will see this with Rahab. And in light of, of our celebration of the Lord's table and, and, you know, fitted with where we are in Hebrews, but also the circumstances and, and challenges that we are facing even in our own time, in our own culture as Christians. I wanted to, in a sense, step aside, though again, stay very closely uh, connected with Hebrews and, and the, this whole treatment of faith, but talk specifically today about this issue of faithfulness in relation to the civil authority. And I guess my trepidation in opening this up is that it will likely raise more questions than it will answer. And my intent is not to provide uh, answers to everything. What about this? What about that? What if this happens? What if that happens? But to try to step back and take a big picture and say, how should we understand this thing called civil authority? How do we understand it in its own right? How do we understand it in relation to this thing that we call the church? What in general terms does 
Christian obligation to authorities, civil authorities, governing authorities look like? And then lastly, what might be some of the general principles by which we would consider this thing called resistance to civil authorities? It's not as easy as finding a verse or saying, you know, our government shouldn't be doing this. We have the right to stand up against it. It's it's actually more complicated than that, but in some ways also more simple than that. But I want to work as a, from a starting point, Romans chapter 13, probably not surprising to many of you, but this will be kind of our springboard. But what I want to do is, is back up a little bit, because it's easy for us to focus on a few verses in Romans 13, but of course, it's a part of a much larger discussion on Paul's part, one that's set in the context of even the Jew-Gentile questions at Rome, what it looks like that God is forming a new people in the Messiah, what he's doing in the present age, how Christians should think about their lives in the present age. So I'd like to back up to verse 17 of chapter 12 and then read forward and hopefully provide a little more context to this. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That's going to be important. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Not just your family, not just those you like, not just the members of your local church. As much as it depends on you, as far as it is something that you have a say in, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's going to be important too as we move into Romans 13. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. Don't take vengeance, but if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. I think all of us know chapters and verses were not a part of Paul's original epistle, his original letter. So there isn't a break at chapter 13. This is the flowing out of Paul's thinking as he pens this letter to the Romans. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, and he doesn't mean behavior necessarily in the way we think, but but the conduct of a life that accords with goodness. That sort of a life is not a cause for fear at the hands of the rulers, but rather for evil. The rulers are a cause of fear for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. The authorities are diakonoi, 
servants, ministers. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it, the authority, does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Wherefore, in view of that truth, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are, and here he uses a different term, leiturgoi, he's he's hearkening back to the priesthood. The priests were the ones who were the gatherers and the ministers of Israel's tithes and offerings. So here he says, even in, in relation to the things that we give to the government, they can be viewed as Leiturgoi, ministers in the sanctuary, ministers of God's good, devoting themselves to this very thing. And so render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's the overarching obligation of truthfulness, testifying to truth in our conduct. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he cites from the Decalogue. And he says, any law that you can mention, it has its pleroma, its fullness, its true essence in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no harm to a neighbor. So this is the whole framework in which we need to understand this idea of the ruling authorities and our relation to them. So as I said, first of all, I want to talk about the nature. How do we understand civil authority? And Paul's very clear, and not just Paul, but certainly Paul from this passage. Civil authority, and when I say civil authority, I mean all institutions that govern. Now, obviously, Paul never imagined the massive bureaucracy that we have in our country. But nonetheless, he recognized the reality of governing authorities. And he says that the authorities, the governing authorities, the civil authorities, exist as a divine institution. Civil and governmental authority is ordained by God. Okay, so what? Well, as Paul says, it's ordained by God as an aid, as an aid to human existence in the context of the fallen world that we inhabit. It's ordained by God in view of the world that we inhabit as that world is determined by man's fall and the creational curse. The authorities are appointed and have their function and do their work, fulfill their ordained role as diakonoi and leiturgoi in the context of the fallen world. And so civil authority exists, Paul says, to ensure human well-being. Okay, well, well-being is one of those vague terms that can mean pretty much anything you want it to mean. In what sense are they ordained by God to ensure human well-being? 
well, well-being as defined by man's created nature and man's created function as those things operate in the context of the effects of the fall. Well-being as defined by the nature of human beings and their function in God's creation, but in the context of the fallen world. So well-being is not defined by individuals. It's not defined by institutions. And that's the idea behind the concept of natural law. And some of you who've studied ethics or whatever, you may be familiar with that term. But natural law refers to the principles of moral and just human existence, principles that are perceived instinctively and acknowledged by all people. Remember, Paul said in Romans 2 that the Gentiles who don't have Israel's Torah, they don't have Israel's covenantal instruction in this thing that we call the law of Moses, and yet they do by nature those things that Torah sets forth. There is a, an ethic, if you will, or a set of principles that all people instinctively acknowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not culturally conditioned. In other words, every culture, every human being has some definition of an unjust taking of another life. But one culture may define murder in a way that a different culture doesn't. In other words, slaughtering uh, the, the women and children associated with your enemies in war, a culture may not view that as murder, but it will have some definition of murder. It will have some definition of theft. Taking of booty or property in warfare or as a matter of, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, may not be regarded as theft, but there will be some definition of theft. What is an unjust seizing of property? And this principle of natural law as it exists within human communities always ends up tending towards the arising of civil authority, some entity or some system by which these things that we all acknowledge as true, as human beings live in communities, there has to be some way to cause these things that we all understand in the context of a fallen world and fallen human beings uh, to bring this thing called well-being. And so civil authority is grounded in and it serves this well-being that is associated with what it is to be human, what it is to accord with the nature and the function of human beings. This is what Paul is getting at when he says that the civil authority's role is to serve well-being, to serve what is good by punishing what is evil. And notice he doesn't give an exhaustive definition of what that is. But every culture understands that there is a thing called good and a thing called evil. 
and the civil authorities serve the cause of good by punishing evil. Well, one of the things that flows out of this is that we have to understand that civil authority, while it is divinely ordained, it is not religious in its nature or orientation. And that's upsetting to a lot of people, and there are people who disagree with that view. But civil authority is ordained by God in the context of a human world under the curse. It's an old creation entity, so to speak. It's not religious in its nature orientation. It was ordained for the fallen human race. It has a protecting and preserving function, not a restoring function. And you say, well, why do we care about that? Because a lot of people think it is the role of the civil government to serve the cause of Christian faith or, you know, people's perfection in Christ or whatever it happens to be. So God's mandate for this thing that Paul calls the civil authority, the mandate for that authority is to administer just and benevolent stewardship of God's world with a focus on truth, justice, order, stability, and peace in human society. All of the things that are undermined and jeopardized by the fall. The mandate for civil authority is to bring order, peace, justice, stability, truth into a world that is at odds with those things. And that mandate is the reason for and must inform our understanding of Paul saying that God has given to the civil authority the sword. He's given the sword to the civil authority. That mandate is the reason for the sword, if you will, the power of coercion to the point of life, taking debt, taking life. And Paul acknowledged that the civil authority has that right. He said of himself when he was being tried and accused, if I've done anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But the point is, is that this mandate that the authority has is the reason that it has the sword. But that mandate is the sole jurisdiction or cause in which it can use the sword. It's been given the sword for a very specific purpose, and it cannot justly use the sword outside of that purpose or beyond it. So it's God's ordination. If if the civil authorities are ordained by God, then they are ordained according to his mind, his purpose, the role that he's appointed for them. And that ordination is what defines the proper function, the proper limitation of the governing authority. It also establishes, therefore, the accountability of the governing authority to God. The governing authority is accountable to God and to his ultimate lordship. 
Paul says they are his servants, they are his ministers. They're accountable to him, and that's true whether or not they acknowledge him, whether or not they acknowledge their divine ordination, whether or not they agree with it. They are accountable to him, and the ordination that he has called them forth with, and the mandate to which he's bound them. And then another piece of this that I think we don't often think about is that civil authority exists and functions within, it's a human authority, this civil uh, governmental authority that is a human authority under God exists and functions as a subset of the universal human authority that's embodied in man as God's regal image bearer. The governing authority is a subset of the universal intrinsic authority that God has invested in human beings. We know the destiny of the human creature as image bearers, image children, is not our spirit's floating around in heaven forever, but that God will administer his lordship, his wise, benevolent, just lordship over the works of his hands in and through his regal image bearers, his image children. So that principle tells us that every human being possesses the same essential status, dignity, and worth. as an image bearer created to exercise God's rule over his creation. And in that way, too, not only accountable to God, but in a very real way, that accountability to God is also accountability to the human creature, accountability to people. Governing authority is a subset of human authority, universal human authority. And in that way, too, we see that civil authority is not autonomous, it is not absolute, it is not supreme. To be authentic and to be legitimate, in other words, to conform to the truth of its ordination and mandate, governing authority must reflect and serve the truth of universal human authority as the expression of God's own life and rule. Institutional human lordship or authority is a subset of human lordship. And therefore, the authorities to fulfill their own mandate must honor must recognize, must respect, uphold, serve, and promote the universal human lordship that exists in the human race. Not undermine it, not deny it. They are servants of good, servants of the truth. Well, that's just kind of a brief, and again, everything I'm going to say, there could be This could be a whole year-long series if we wanted to do it that way. 
But those are, in general, if we say, how do we understand the civil authority? That would be some bullets that I would put against that. Well, now we bring in this idea of the church. Because everything I've said has nothing to do with the church, per se. It has to do with the authorities being ordained by God to exercise a certain function in a fallen world. When we bring the church into the picture, we start by recognizing that Jesus' death and resurrection introduced a whole new order and structure to the creation. This is, these things are a point at which I think Christians often fall short. Because the way we naturally tend to think is that what Jesus did, what he accomplished, is simply he did something so that I can be forgiven. And then the I who is forgiven can go on with my life and maybe live it in a little bit better way. Maybe be a little bit you know, more moral or more upright or more religious or whatever. But the forgiven me goes on with life. And eventually the forgiven me dies and my spirit goes off to a place called heaven. And that's the end of the story. Well, what happens then? Well, we don't know. You just go to heaven. That's the end of it. But the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It was the beginning of what Paul calls a new creation. Jesus' resurrection inaugurated God's new creation. But as it is now the already but not yet kingdom of God. And this applies across the board in everything that we can talk about with respect to the world we inhabit, our own lives as believers, the manifestation of Jesus' own lordship, the judgment on the powers, the renewing of the whole creation. But the resurrection of Jesus, and specifically, or or beyond that, as kind of the capstone of the Christ event, the Ascension and enthronement of Jesus inaugurated God's ultimate, eternally determined and planned lordship over all creation, including the whole earth, as the enthroned new man, as the enthroned last Adam. We've seen that throughout Hebrews. I emphasize that at length as we went through it, that the writer is, as he's talking about the glory of Christ in in ascension and enthronement. It's the glory of Christ as true man, the destiny of the human creature that is seen in the glorification of the Son. And Paul says that already we've been raised up in him, seated in the heavenly places. He has been raised far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that's been named in this age and the age to come. And we by that same power that raised him, have been raised up and are seated in that realm in him. With the recognition that Christ himself, the glorified, enthroned new man, is last Adam, and therefore he has his own glorified, reigning, regal fullness in this thing called the church. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
That's what Jesus, when he, we, what we call his great commission is he says, all authority in he- by virtue of my resurrection and the ascension that's about to happen, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Already, but not yet. And we saw in Hebrews 2. In subjecting all things to him, we do not presently see all things effectively in subjection to him. But what we do see is the one who was made for a while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Right? And the writer is talking, citing from Psalm 8, to what really is the destiny of his Hebrew readers and ultimately all who share in the Messiah's glorification. This is the sense in which the gospel, the good news, proclaims Jesus' lordship. So this inaugurated kingdom then, because of this already but not yet, we do not see all things presently in subjection to him. Even 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the glorification of the Son, and yet he says he is seated at the right hand of power, enthroned in this way, waiting for all of his enemies to become the footstool for his feet. The last enemy that remains is death, mortality. But this inaugurated kingdom, therefore, exists within the present cursed age. And the dominion of darkness in the sense that John says the whole world lies in the evil one. See, both of these things are true. This inaugurated kingdom, and and you've heard me say it many times, if we really get the gospel right, the gospel is the triumph of God in the Messiah. And if we proclaim that, the gospel, the good news of new creation, then anyone with a brain would say, where is it? I don't see it. Where's this new creation? Everything continues as it has from the beginning of the world. Where is it? And what I say all the time is the evidence, the proof, the substance of new creation is the community of people who are sharers in that new creation in Jesus himself. He is the first fruits. He is the beginning. He is the essential substance of this thing called God's renewed creation. And all who share in him, the church is the truth of new creation. That's why Jesus says, Father, when they are one... as you and I are one, then the world will understand that you sent me. When the world sees a community of people who have become a human organism doing life in a whole different way, then they can say, okay, now I understand the meaning of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus didn't just come so that we can be forgiven, although we are forgiven. He didn't just come so that our guilt can be wiped away, although our guilt is wiped away. He didn't just come to deal with a list of of transgressions. He came to be the agent in himself of the renewing of all things and the summing up of all things in the heavens and the earth in himself. 
So civil authority then pertains only to the fallen order. It isn't part of the new creation. Civil authority in the way that Paul is speaking here doesn't pertain to the new creation. It has no jurisdiction within it. It is an old creation entity. Some people want to trace it back to the covenant with Noah, you know, and and the covenant with Noah is viewed as one in dispensationalism as the dispensation of human government, right? After the flood, we have the initiation of this thing called the dispensation of human government. So people have recognized that what God, this covenant with Noah after the flood, says something about the way human social structures or human existence communally will now be administered going forward, coming, coming out of the flood. But my point is this, as, as a fundamental thing in terms of the church and the civil authority, is that the jurisdiction of the civil authority does not pertain to the new creation. It pertains to the old creation. But the already not yet means that those two things interleaf in some sense, right? You hear me say all the time that Christians are the only people that have to live in two worlds at the same time. Our citizenship is in this renewal that is in the Messiah, raised up, seated in the heavenly places in him, and yet we carry out this new creational life in the old creation, the world that still operates under the effects of the curse, the effects of the fall. The civil authorities are not a part of the new creation, When this is all summed up in the Messiah, there will be no civil authority in the way that we understand it. That's the essential and critical separation between church and state, which has always been this ongoing debate, right? The essential separation of church and state is that the church is the present reality manifestation of new creation in the Messiah, The state is still old creation. That's why the language of exile and sojourner, stranger, the scripture uses that. Well, it's the the missing of that that has been the vision, the missing of that separation that historically was brought about this phenomenon that we call Christendom or the Christian empire that began in a a certain sense with Constantine in the Constantinian change. The forming of the Holy Roman Empire. Christendom. But this separation is the reason why that vision, why that implementation failed. The very concept of a Christian state denies the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. How so? Well, as long as we remove this idea of new creation from Jesus' death and resurrection, then we can put church and state together. 
Because all there is is the creation polished up a little bit, right? Or whatever. Or, you know, people polished up until the day when God burns it all up and gets rid of it. But if the resurrection of Jesus initiated a new creational order, then the whole notion of a Christian state is the denial of that. And any any attempt to implement a Christian state contradicts what has come in the Messiah, and therefore it will fail. In the nature of the case, a Christian state is a Christianized version of the natural order. It's nothing more than a Christianized version of the natural order. It replaces the reality of new creation with the religion of Christianity. It replaces the new creation with the religion of Christianity. And by the religion of Christianity, I mean a religious philosophy that can be appropriated by man in his natural state. And if you think this isn't what happens or how people think, just look at how, how the culture or academia or even the guy in the street thinks about this thing of religion. There are all these religions, and they all have truth, and they're all climbing up the mountain to the same point. You've got Jesus, he's got Buddha, he's got Muhammad, he's got Zoroaster. They're all climbing up the hill to the same place. They all agree that there's this thing called right and wrong, and they want a just culture, and they want this, and they want that. And it shows that when people look at this thing called the Christian faith, they see another religion. They don't see new creation bound up in the resurrected Messiah. They see a new religion with its own doctrine, its own avatar, its own holy book, its own standard of conduct, its own destiny in some heavenly place when we die. Just like Islam has, just like Buddhism has just like Zoroastrianism has. And so the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian state. This is why those who have sought and advocated for a Christian state have turned to the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. If you read Reformed writings among the magisterial reformers, guys like Calvin and Luther and others, the magisterial reformers were ones who wanted to hold on to the sacral church. For a thousand years, Western Europe had been a church state. And they started from that premise, and their reforms were set within that premise. And there were those who believed, at least early on with Luther and Calvin to some extent, that these were men who were going to see the wrongfulness of a state church, of a sacral church. But they didn't. They didn't. What we call the Anabaptists, among others, were were, uh, groups who said, you cannot have a Christian state. You have Christian people. But guys like Calvin and others, they they pointed to the Israelite theocracy and they said, there it is. 
And I believe even historically that's ground uh, or, or, or very fundamental to the, to the Reformed premise within Reformed theology of the one covenant of grace and the one people of God. Israel's life with God as the covenant people and the nature of that relationship, the theocratic structure of Israel's life with God, the people defined by sacramental sign, that premise, that definition carries forward post-Christ. It's just circumcision has become baptism and other things as well. But the continuity principle... And so the reformers, at least the magisterial reformers, were looking for a way to uphold scripturally the long-standing premise of a state church, the Holy Roman Empire. They couldn't imagine how church and state could function if they weren't organized in that sort of a way. And there are even among, amongst Reformed people today those who are still advocating for the same thing, those who would be associated with theonomy or Christian Reconstructionism. They want a Christian state. America will not be blessed until its laws are the law of Moses, until the sanctions of the law of Moses are imposed in the land. And I don't want to get into the deep water with that, but this idea of how do we think about church and state and the relationship between them is very, very important. But when we think of new creation, old creation, and already but not yet, there are a couple important implications that come out with respect to this idea of church and state and our responsibility as Christians to the governing authority. The first ought to be obvious, which is that there can be no such thing as a Christian government. There isn't a Christian country. Too often we teach our kids, America was a Christian country. There aren't Christian countries, there are Christian people. And even the first pilgrims that came to this country, the first settlers, weren't all what we would call Christians Some of them were people who were just trying to escape from England, you know, and come to this country where they could have more freedom and nobody telling them what to do. The kind of guys that live up in northern Idaho today, right? There aren't Christian countries. That sort of understanding of theocracy is false, and seeking to implement it will always have a disastrous outcome. And yet, at the same time, God is king over all the earth. Think about Isaiah 52, how blessed on the mountains is the one who proclaims good news who proclaims peace, tidings of happiness, who proclaims deliverance, who says, your God reigns, says to Zion, your God reigns. That was Isaiah's way of expressing this day when God arises in the Messiah and becomes Lord, king over all the earth. We saw that in the, in the prophecy of Zechariah. In that day, God will be king in all the earth. He will be the only one. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
That has been fulfilled in substance. And so God is king over all the earth, and he administers his absolute rule through his enthroned image son. So what I'm saying is theocracy is God's design for the world. God as king. Theocracy is God's design for the world, and it exists even now, but according to the principle of already but not yet. See, we can get really confused if we read the New Testament. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father and throne with all power and authority and dominion and, and, and supreme over every name and a power and authority that's named in this age and the age to come. Well, where is that? We don't see that. The kings of this world are doing what they want. People are doing what they want. Where is that? But there is, God's design is ultimately theocratic rule, and theocracy will define all human institutions and their operation when God has summed up all creation in King Jesus and in that way become all in all. The problem with theocracy is the way we think about it. We think Islamic extremism or whatever, right? Theocracy means a bunch of people are going to be killing each other or, or you know, I'm in control and I'm, I'm the one serving God and therefore I can take you out. We say we don't want theocracy where religious people are in control. But theocracy, where God is king over all things, is exactly God's design. But how does he administer that lordship through his human image bearers? And it's his wise, benevolent, loving, caring, nurturing lordship. Not lordship as we know it. So what then is our obligation to civil authority? based on those things. And again, we have to, if we're going to answer this question of obligation to civil authority, we first have to say, how do we understand this thing called civil authority, and how does it stand in relation to the church, to the body of Christ? Those things are found foundational to saying, okay, what is our obligation, and what does faithfulness look like in that relationship with the civil authority? And one of the first things, again, that comes out of that is that we are wrong as Christians when we think that the civil authorities need to share in or conform to God's new creation in Jesus. The civil authority is an old creation entity. We're back to the whole church-state thing. Unless the authorities are Christian, we don't submit to them. Our submission to the authorities does not depend on them sharing in or conforming to God's new creation in Jesus. It never can conform. It's not going to conform. And yet at the same time, these authorities are accountable to the king under whose rule, authority, and commission they execute their power. Well, that begs the question, how is that accountability carried out? Okay, it's fine to say they're accountable to God, but where's God? What's he doing about all of this? How's he holding the authorities accountable? 
Well, the truth is that that accountability is realized through the manifest reign of King Jesus. And what is that manifest reign? It's in those who share in his life and his mind. Paul says the man who still operates according to nature cannot embrace in truth the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually appraised. He can't know them in truth. He can understand them. He can agree with them. He can't be transformed by them in himself. They are spiritually discerned. But the man who is spiritual discerns all things, and yet he's subject to no man's discernment of him, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord or given him understanding? But we have the mind of Christ. How does God hold the authorities accountable? They're through his enthroned son. How does he hold them accountable through his enthroned son? Through the church that is his fullness. The church represents the manifest reign of Jesus in the world. And that accountability, which isn't just with respect to rulers, but all men, is exactly what the gospel proclaims. The gospel is the way in which the ruling authorities are held accountable. We say, well, that doesn't make any sense, because the gospel is simply the formula to go to heaven when you die. Well, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that our God reigns. And again, I've said it so many times. If if the gospel were simply, here's how you can die and go off to a wonderful place when you die, then none of the early apostles and apostolic witnesses would have been in prison. No one's going to be in prison because they say, here's how you can have a wonderful life after you die. They believed in the ancient world that their spirits were going to go off somewhere when they died. What got them in prison was the fact that they were saying, Caesar is not supreme Lord. When the Jews came down from Thessalonica to Berea and stirred up the crowds, what did they say? These people are telling people how they can go to heaven. No, they said, these men are preaching another king other than Caesar. That's what got them in trouble. That's what got them in prison. And it wasn't simply this idea of lordship that, you know, God's in control. He tells you what to do. Do what he says. He's the boss. The lordship of God realized in the Messiah was the inauguration of this thing called the kingdom of God, a whole new paradigm of lordship and creational administration and relationship with God. Jesus had to get his disciples to understand that. They said, we know you're the Lord. We know you're the king. We know you're the Messiah. And he goes, you don't understand kingship. You don't understand lordship. You're not going to wash our feet. You're the king. You're the Lord. Kings don't wash feet. Well, if you don't receive me in this way, you have no share in me, right? That's what Jesus said in the upper room. They had to rethink lordship. They had to rethink kingship. They had to rethink authority. They had to rethink power. And that's what 
the church proclaims, a new king, a new kind of kingdom that operates according to the power of self-giving love. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? Owe no debt to anyone except the never-ending debt of love. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't seek vengeance. Understand that the authorities are the ones who carry out God's wrath, but even your holding them to account is through this thing called the manifesting of the new kind of lordship, the new kind of reign that is in the Messiah in a new community that is governed according to a new set of principles. Christians proclaim the gospel when they speak truth to power. And that means when they proclaim by their lives as well as their words the truth of Jesus lordship and the obligation of all men, not just rulers, to own that lordship and to be conformed to it. This is what Paul said on Mars Hill in Athens, right? This is what they went around proclaiming. There is a new Lord. There is a greater Lord than Caesar, but a different sort of Lord. Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king. Well, I'm not a king like you think. My kingdom is not of this world. It's of a different sort. It pertains to this world. It will take this world into its grasp, but it's not a kingdom and a kingship like you've known like anyone in this world has ever known. So governing authorities then are the way that we speak, the way that we hold them accountable is by speaking truth to power. We speak truth to power. And the way that we speak truth to power is not saying you're not in charge, I am. It's by manifesting Jesus' lordship in the world which looks like the power of self-giving love. So again, the legitimacy of civil authority doesn't depend on the civil authority embracing Jesus as the Messiah. It doesn't have to be a Christian government for us to submit to it. But it has to conform to its mandate on behalf of men. On behalf of man as image bearer, man as God has revealed and affirmed him in Jesus' own person and triumph. And so legitimate authority serves human good in that way. Protecting against evil, preserving order, justice, truth, encouraging human flourishing. Paul says pray for kings and those who are in authority. That finally Rome will become a Christian empire. Pray for kings and those in authority that we would be allowed and able to live quiet and peaceable lives. And as this new creational community bear the fragrance of Christ in the world, including to the authorities. So Christians submit to authorities as they fulfill their calling. Authorities fulfill their calling as God's servants. Not by them and we're requiring of them that they mandate and enforce a Christian society. We're not looking for the government to enforce and mandate a Christian society. We don't want prayer in the public schools in that way. We don't want to Christianize the school system or the institutions of our government. That's to lie against the truth of what has come in Jesus. But 
the authorities as God's servants are obligated to honor and uphold the dictates of God's general moral order that is known and embraced by all men. That's why Paul can simply say they are agents of good. How do they do good? By making people good? No, by punishing evil. It's a protecting retributive goodness. So what are some general principles then, very quickly, governing this idea of resistance? If civil authority is an old creation entity, and it is, it is, then it is absolutely necessary by God's own ordination and design. Civil authority is absolutely necessary to restrain the effects of the fall within human society. Civil authority is good. It's ordained by God, but as an old creation entity. And that's the reason that God has given it the sword. But as an old creational entity that sits in this thing called the fall, the civil authority is itself a very dangerous thing. For the civil authority to have the sword is a very dangerous thing. And we only have to look at the 20th century and see, what, well over 100 million people who were killed by unjust authority. It's a dangerous thing to give an old creation entity the sword. It's especially susceptible to massive abuses. And so God didn't intend that the civil authority, that it it would have an absolute authority and power. But again, it's a subset of the human authority that all men possess as image bearers. It serves that authority. And so they have no jurisdiction to promote or impose what is unjust according to God's revealed truth and the law of love. And I qualify that because unjust is one of those things that, again, can be very nebulous. Unjust is what I don't like, what I disagree with, what inconveniences me, what I don't think it should be that way. That's unjust. I'm not talking about that kind of injustice, but that which goes against that which violates God's own revealed truth and the law of love. And at some level, all authority is unjust because it's an old creation thing. It exists under the fall. If we want perfectly just civil authorities, we're never going to find them. Even we who are in Christ are not perfectly just, right? Are we? So it's always a matter of degree. I'm not telling you or me when we resist, how we resist. I'm simply trying to put some principles out there. The civil authority as ordained by God has no jurisdiction to promote or impose what is unjust. But according to God's definition of justice and the function of civil authority as he has decreed it, Legitimate authority has no power beyond its proper or lawful jurisdiction. And Romans 13 tells us what that jurisdiction is. And again, Paul's speaking in general terms. 
God ordains civil authority. Here's kind of the, the, the general statement. He ordains civil authority to honor and reward human good, but not to define human good and not to establish human good, but to honor and to reward human good. An old creation entity cannot truly promote good in a positive way. It can only promote good in a negative way by punishing evil. It's not, and we live in a country where we look to the government to be the promoters of good, social justice, welfare, well-being, whatever we think. That's not its jurisdiction. And when we submit to arbitrariness, which is this, our own definition of what's good or just or what the government should do or not do, when we submit to arbitrariness, we approve and cultivate chaos and lawlessness, which is the very opposite of God's purposes for human authorities. Secondly, civil authority does retain the right of coercion by God's design. The authority does have the sword by God's design. And it exercises its authority in every arena through coercion of some type. You drive 50 in a 35 zone, you're going to get a ticket. It's going to cost you something. It might cost points. There's coercion involved in everything that the authorities do, right? There's enforcement. They don't make you become a safe driver. They punish you when you're not a safe driver. God gave it the sword, and and that sword is the means of coercion by God's design. But he's given that sword, as I said before, in a very limited venue. It's to enforce his rule. The sword is to enforce, to... to, to, um, hold together in, in, in culture, in, in the world under the fall, to hold together justice, truth, order, peace. And fundamental to that is the state upholding the truth of man as image son. You see this in some of the founding fathers. I, I don't know what exactly what it was in their minds, but even this idea of this inalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... We live in a culture where we think we got all kinds of rights. We don't have a whole bunch of rights. The right that we have is the right to live a human life as image bearers in truth. That's the right that we have. And the founding fathers had their own way of kind of putting their label on that from sort of an enlightenment perspective. But nonetheless, the authorities are put in place to uphold and promote in a, by means of the sword man as image bearer and image son in the world. When civil authority is anti-human, anti-law, anti-truth, law not in terms of a law on the books per se, but law as Torah, God's revealed mind, what this is, how this works, 
Who is this creature that I've created? When civil authorities, anti-human, anti-law, anti-truth, not our truth, but God's truth as revealed in Jesus himself and his enthronement, his kingdom, then it must be resisted at those points. Not across the board, at those points. And so Christian resistance can't be limited to instances of covert, you know, compulsion to covert sin. People often say, well, you know, if the government tells me I have to get an abortion, then I don't do that. Or if the government tells me, you know, that I can only have one child, or the government tells me that I, I, I can't go to church or whatever, then I'll resist that. When we, we can do our catalog of things that we call sin and we say, when they make me sin, then that's when I resist. It goes beyond that. And it can't just be simply when the, the authorities violate duly established laws or social contracts. We say, well, when they go against our Constitution, that's when we finally stand up. Submission to law has to take precedence over submission to human authorities. It's the principle of lex rex. The law is king. The king isn't the law. The law is king. And the law is defined by God's own truth. Not saying the government needs to be a Christian government. But the principles of natural law have to be upheld. They have precedence over human authority. Ultimately, all sitting under God's revealed truth. So resistance might be required when authorities are complying with established laws. Social contracts. Hitler was a duly elected chancellor of Germany and the Germans passed laws. It was all lawful. Laws, policies, actions against human beings and or human community are offenses against God because man is his image and likeness. That's the heart of the Noahic human government definition. And then lastly, and this is probably the most important thing and should make us step back and be more wise and careful, resistance must be an informed and a wise act of worship. Resistance must be a wise and informed act of worship, not selfishness, not rebellion, not insistence on comfort or the way I like it or the way I want it. And that means that resistance that honors God demands mature understanding and mature faith. It can't be culturally driven. It can't be outcome-oriented, let alone emotional, irrational, reactionary. It can't be that. And I think as much as anything in our time where we're thinking about resistance and where we should be resisting or how we should resist, this is a call to the church to grow up. If we're really going to honor God with respect to our relationship to the civil authority, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, then we need to grow up. Because this isn't about hobby horsing certain issues that are important to us or certain things we don't like 
or certain things that they're telling us to do. This isn't culturally driven. It's not a matter of our own selfishness or our comfort level. It's a resistance that reflects a mature understanding and faith, an unwavering commitment to truth. The truth of God that is embodied in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is the truth. For a meditation, then, I just want to read you a couple of things here as we prepare to come to the table. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he faced a very real challenge in his time where the church, the Lutheran church in Germany, largely just was annexed by the Nazi party because it worked, and the theology worked. And it kept the church strong. It kept the church, you know, it kept things intact. It kept everything right where they wanted it to be. And he had to do business with how to think about this, even with respect to Hitler himself. But here's what he says. Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power. And with its plea for the weak. There again is that idea of power serving the cause of man as image bearer. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. The Christian community adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. The world is overcome not through destruction, but through reconciliation. And he means appeasement. Not ideals, nor programs, nor conscience, nor duty, nor responsibility, nor virtue, but only God's perfect love can encounter reality, things as they are, and overcome it. Nor is it some universal nebulous idea of love, but rather the love of God in Jesus the Messiah, a love genuinely lived that does this. We must, in the end, stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing. Hide behind the veneer of Christianity or a verse or a passage or a doctrine, for that is nothing but fear. Open your mouth for the one who is voiceless, for who in the church today still remembers that that is the least of the Bible's demands in times such as this. And then drawing from what Chris had said, this is Francis Schaeffer who said that what was, uh, and he wrote this more than 50 years ago or close to 50 years ago, the basic thought form of modern Western culture has become almost the totally accepted viewpoint, the monolithic consensus The majority of people have adopted two impoverished values, the only values they are absolutely unwilling to let go of, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace means just to be left alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city, to live my life with minimal possibility of being disturbed. Personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what it will mean in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. 
So affluence means an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity, a life made up of things, things, and more things, a success judged by an ever-higher level of material abundance. Christians, as Christians, we are not only to know the right worldview, the one that tells us the truth of what is, but we are consciously to act upon that worldview. And so influence society in all of its parts and facets across the whole spectrum of life. As we look back to the time of slavery and the time after the Industrial Revolution, we're thankful for Christians then who spoke out and acted publicly against slavery and against the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. You know, the salt mines and child labor and the, you know, the abuse of people in, in the accumulation of wealth. I wonder if Christians of the future will be thankful that in our day we spoke out and acted against abuses in the area of race and non-compassionate use of wealth. And yet also and equally balance this in speaking out and acting against the special sickness and threat of our age, which is the rise of authoritarian government writing 50 years ago. That is to say, will we resist authoritarian government in all its forms, regardless of the label it carries, regardless of its origin? The danger in regard to the rise of authoritarian government is that Christians will be still, they'll be silent, as long as their own religious activities, evangelism, and lifestyles are not disturbed. If we can just get the state, you know, to leave us alone then we'll roll over. We'll be silent as long as they don't bug us. Here is a sentence to memorize, Schaefer says, to make no decision in regard to the growth of authoritarian government is already a decision for it. None of that discounts the civil authority. None of that discounts the rightness and the propriety of the government, but it sets it within, again, its mandate and how we're to think about it. Well, I know there's a lot there and there's infinitely more that probably needs to be said, but I hope it gives us some things to think about and contemplate. And the bottom line, again, is that we have to be Christians in our day. We have to grow up. I don't think we're long for a world, a country, in which we can just be content to say, I was baptized when I was eight and I know I'm going to heaven and that's the end of the story. That's not going to fly. That's not going to fly. We have to be the fragrance of Christ in our culture. We have to be a wise and a mature and a discerning people. We need to grow up. We need to grow up. Well, let me pray as we prepare to to come to the table then, and we'll take a few minutes of contemplation. Father, I pray that that you would give to each of us a wake-up call. We don't have to have all the answers. We, We never will have all the answers. But we need to wake up from our stupor. We need to wake up from our easy slumber and say as long as we can go about our days with a minimal amount of disturbance, we don't have to worry about anything. But we also have to recognize that you have not issued, nor will you issue, a call to arms. To rise up and overthrow the governing authorities. They do rule by your decree, by your ordination. 
but they are accountable to you. And that accountability is carried out through those who have your life and your mind. We are the ones who must speak truth to power. We are the ones who must proclaim the gospel, the good news that our God reigns. But we must proclaim that truth according to truth. A kingship and a kingdom that are not according to the kingdoms of this world. And revolution as we know it never won and never will win. It's as Bonhoeffer said, the triumph of the love of God in Christ worked out in a world through a community that shares in that life and love and has been transformed by it. Father, as we come to the table, we come as your people with that understanding. We come together, not as individuals, but as the body of Christ. Just as we come to this table recognizing that your cross has indeed brought us out of death into life, It has done so to make us members of a new human organism. And therefore, we don't come alone. We don't come as individuals. We don't come as independent, autonomous, self-seeking people. We come as the body of Christ. Father, I pray for each one of us that we will think about these things in a way that honors you that you will give us clarity, that you will help us in our task, in our desire to grow and to learn and to mature, to be wise people in these days. Help us in these things. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.